potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today, helping to create a better tomorrow on some very unique fronts. Today we have the honor of being joined by Lisa Sanders, who is the Director of Science and Technology for Special Operations Forces Acquisition Technology and Logistics uh, at U.S. Special Operations Command, also known as U.S. SOCOM. Uh, she's located at MacDill Air Force Base in Florida, where she was responsible for all research and development funded activities at SOCOM. Uh, Sanders has a, a 30 years of civilian federal service. She first entered uh, federal service as an electronics engineer at Naval Avionics Center in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, there she served in uh, quality engineering, production engineering, program management, she transferred over to uh, the Naval Air Warfare Center and Naval Air Systems Command uh, in Maryland, then serving as electronics engineer and program manager for the E2C uh, Hawkeye aircraft. And then she soon assumed responsibility after that for production and modification of the CV-22, which is a fascinating vertical takeoff and landing aircraft. Uh, and during her time at Nav Air, she managed one of the first multi-year procurements. Uh, she executed the modification and the delivery of the CV-22 production and development test aircraft. Uh, she then transferred to SOCOM in 2005, where she retained responsibility not just for the CV-22 production, but she also worked uh, as a systems acquisition manager for the, uh, the C-130 program uh, in the program executive office fixed wing, managing all of that project uh, across special operations uh, forces. In 2010, uh, she was promoted to the position of deputy director of science and technology directorate, and then 2011 was assigned uh, to the position of director of science and technology. Uh, in 2014, she left SOCOM for a bit to attend the defense Acquisition University Senior College Service, a fellowship in Aberdeen, Maryland, graduated there in 2015 and was assigned to Headquarters Air Force, uh, serving as the Chair for Air Force Capability Development Working Group, and then was selected as a uh, Defense Intelligence Senior Leader in 2016. Um, Ms. has her uh, her Bachelor in Science in Mechanical Engineering from uh, Kettering University, her Master's in Business Administration, St. Leo University, and uh, this uh, Senior Service uh, College Fellowship uh, in Senior Professional Military Education. Uh, we're honored to have her with us today. Going to be talking a lot of really interesting topics. Uh, but Lisa Sanders, uh, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you so much. What a privilege to get a chance to talk to you. And and uh, it's always interesting to sit here and listen to your bio be read because it's like, yeah, I remember that. Boy, that boy, I'm a different person than I was then. That was a cool experience. So thank you for kind of letting me walk down memory lane. 
you know, it, it, it's a uh, it's a fascinating journey you've been on, and I, I enjoy I enjoy reading through that. Um, but you know, I, I would love to at least just you know, as we typically do, um, start off by handing you the floor for a little bit to sort of fill in some of the other gaps because we you know I'd love to hear about uh, your backgrounds, uh, you know, everything from sort of where you grew up, what sparked sort of your initial interest in in STEM, uh, mechanical engineering, uh, and a little bit of that very early journey. I think that'd be a cool place to start. Yeah, no, that, it, what, it, it, that's great. I'm happy to do that. Um, I will start with, and I say this all the time when I, when I go and talk to people, I don't consider myself any sort of a scientist. I am always the stupidest person in the room when I'm in engagements because I do not have that big brain. But what I bring to the table is a connection to relevant problems and a willingness to really turn that conversation into um meaningful, actionable um, activities. So it's, I, I joke that I'm the translator, right? I have no problem saying, can you say that in English? Or I think you're talking about this and that sort of resonates with, with uh, you know, capability that we would need. And so, um, so I don't have that deep scientific knowledge that uh, that went out and played with a chemistry set or, or you know in today's world would be the one that was using the the code bug or anything like that um, I actually when I was in uh, you know for as I was thinking about the what do you want to do when you grow up my initial career plan kind of once you get over that everybody wants to be a superhero or a fireman right uh, was I wanted to teach music uh, and uh, and and in mid to late high school, I realized I wasn't quite as talented as I thought I was, uh, and uh, and 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 really kind of sat back and said, okay, so what? And oh, by the way, it would be kind of nice to make a to have a career that I could make a living at, uh, pay my bills. And uh, and I sat down, and I had always done fairly well in math and science, and and kind of looked into what I describe engineering and program management to be. It turns out that in my mind, what I do is solve problems. And so that's what attracted me to STEM. It wasn't, and, and there's beauty in physics and there's beauty in science and people that are core at core, that's what they do. That's what attracts them. To me, it was the output delivering capability that is what attracted me. And that has continued to draw me to, um, to motivate me throughout my career. Um, so I did, uh, you mentioned that I started my career in Indianapolis. I grew up in Indianapolis went to high school there. Um, Naval Avionics Center, which became a Naval Warfare Center, went through a base closure in the mid-90s, which led me to Patuxent, Maryland, which moved me from avionics to airplanes. Uh, had the opportunity to be exposed to uh, many people that are listening may remember that the V-22 was having some, uh, some challenges in, you know, in the Late 90s, early 2000s, um, it, it's a transformational capability and transformational capabilities come at risk. And so I came on to the CV-22 uh, as they were doing what they called return to flight, which brought me to Special Operations Command, which is where I really consider uh, my, my home. Uh, so having the opportunity to, the, the first production CV-22 literally went from the uh, flight line acceptance to being in the initial scene of the Transformers movie within two weeks. So it was pretty cool to be a part of that, uh, of that transition, uh, became a part of the C-130 um, recapitalization, uh, and then um, took a total left turn when I literally interviewed for the science and technology job as a practice interview. And they offered it to me. And I was like, I'm not real sure I know what I'm going to do in this job. But now I realize that what I get to do now is, is step 
up from delivering capability and now I focus on bringing together the people that deliver the capability. So I grow organic government talent and I connect our problems with the people that can solve that. And, and I think the next question you're going to ask me is why is my job one of the best jobs on the planet? And it's because I get to do that. So that that's sort of a segue as well. Thank you, Ira. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, I, that, that was going to be the next question, but I clearly just listening to and thinking about some of, of what we'll be getting into, I, I see why. <laughs> it, it, it is with millions of you know, people in our Department of Defense, um, why it's why it is a great job. Um, so I wonder, you know, we've touched on SOCOM a bit on, on some of our previous episodes, but I, I'd feel like if we could just start off a bit, if you could sort of reintroduce us to the organization, uh, obviously your science and technology director within that and a little bit of where you today you know get your directors you know from you know who calls you up and you know obviously with my my hollywood um you know mind on i see you know some navy seals or delta force coming in your office and saying lisa we want this uh and you know we'll be we need it three months and bye-bye but tell us a little bit about the process you know sort of what's involved and where these directives come from yeah, appreciate that opportunity because there are definitely some false perceptions out there. I'll start with the false perceptions first. There's a false perception that SOCOM doesn't have to follow anybody else's rules and we have buckets of money. Neither of those is true. Right? We are a part of the Defense Department. We get our authority, our derived authority. Uh, the one thing that is a little unique about us is that as an enterprise, SOCOM was formed by an act of Congress in 1987. Uh, and so uh, we, we were established through what's called Title 167, uh, or uh, US Code 167, which is a, a, if you're a lawyer, you know, I'll go look those things up. But it basically says that this command is responsible for train organizing and equipping the requirements of special operations within the Defense Department. In the past, before that, each of the services had just an implied uh, requirement to do this. But now we were formed to do those things that were unique to the special operations mission. We are done doing that in partnership though with the services. So when you ask about what the science and technology authority is, so we have the responsibility, the combatant command responsibility through that code. And then we are also given our acquisition authority under, um, the Office of Secretary of Defense for acquisition uh, and whether in my case, a lot of mine derives from the research and engineering. Um, when you go into the program of record, that's much more tied to the acquisition and sustainment. So our, our single reporting line is through USD, Under Secretary of Defense for acquisition and sustainment. And then our combatant command authority goes to Commander US SOCOM, who in this case has just become General Brian Fenton, who just took command a few weeks ago. Uh, so we have that dual line responsibility and we do our acquisition and technology development in those areas that special operations needs that are not being provided by the services. So uh, just a great example, kind of tied back to my history, um, the aircraft uh, that are used by Special Operations Command are almost all jointly funded. So for instance, the C-130s that Special Operations has, the basic airplane, the engines, the wings, you know, the fuel control systems, the radio, the standard radios, those are all provided by Air Force money. The unique modifications that allow an MC-130 to do terrain following, so to fly 150 to 200 feet off the ground, 
The general purpose forces don't use that. That's funded by special operations, unique money. Uh, so when we look, look at that from an S&T perspective, I'm looking at technologies that um, aren't being developed by the service. Um, so I, I, I'm looking at things that oftentimes either um, because we operate in small groups, maybe away from a support infrastructure. So that sometimes can drive that. And sometimes it is our unique missions. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that can drive something to be unique to Special Operations Command is that we can be a beta tester, an early adopter for the service. So uh, as an example, night vision devices, everybody in the world uses night vision devices all the way down to people that go hunting at night, right? Um, but Special Operations is one of the early adopters for technology. So things like using digital uh, uh, digital sensors to be able to fuse information at night. We did a lot of early research in the 2010s because we wanted to be able to what what's now looked at as fused information. These are things that we're used to. I mean, the palm of our hand right now, you can use you know, an overlay of a map that's tracking somebody's, you know, we do that commercially. You can do that because it's digital. Um, our, our night vision devices were all analog because the computing that's required to, pro to handle that processing in the 2010s, the, it, it was too big. It, you couldn't put it on an operator. Power was a requirement. Weight was an issue. So we did a lot of work. About, okay, what did we need to make that deployable on a soldier? In the 2012-2013 time, the computing wasn't available, so we shelved it. It's now 2022, the Army's IVAS program exactly has followed up on that. Now processing is available. It's no longer unique to Special Operations Command. Army is leading that forward to meet that requirement. So that's just an example of how we use our authorities. Very cool, very cool. And, and, and in that environment of, of, as you say, of not having sort of infinite dollars or infinite resources to do these. Obviously, you, you collaborate in, in many different ways with, with other parts uh, of the DOD. Um, and we, you know, we've had guests on the show from you know places like DARPA, uh, Office of Naval Research, who's also done some shows um, with some of the um, groups like uh, AFWorks and, and Navalex. I know mm -hmm. SOCOM has sort of a similar sort of, uh, sort of Silicon Valley collaborative stuff, uh, while, you know, something like the DARPA, you know, Cloak the aircraft carrier, come back in five years and all that bit. So it's sort of different ranges of, you know, of science and technology involved in all this stuff. Talk a little bit about how you collaborate uh, with sort of these innovation centers, but also the private sector bit, if you would, because I know you have that Softworks, which is sort of similar to the AFWorks model that we talked on, on mm -hmm. previous shows. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that that is... Um, very relevant about special operations approach to this is that we tailor the way we engage depending on who we're engaging with and what we're seeking to achieve. Mm -hmm. So just sort of closing the thought on something like a digital night vision, something mm -hmm. for that, there's a, that's a pretty clear military partnership. We're doing that largely in cooperation with a service that has a mission and they're our transition partner. So there we spend a lot of time what is it that we need it to do and how can we partner with um, giving early assessments and feedback to help them build that program out? So it's it's much more about um, um, having a what do we need it to do and, and giving the feedback as they're developing that. And we're doing that in coordination with the service. 
usually those are pretty clearly known partners um, because we know what they are. Digital Night Vision was the Army. Uh, you could say some of the work that we do in undersea, great partnerships with the Navy, uh, et cetera. And so that's about working at the Office of Secretary of Defense level. So one of the roles that I have now that I didn't have back in the 2010-2011 is I sit on the, the Science and Technology Executive Committee. So I once a month have engagements with the heads of Air Force Research Lab, you know, the Army's research investment. DARPA has a seat at that table, Missile Defense Agency. And what we do there is we talk about what do what are the big investments they're making and are there um, uh, places to experiment with how that could be employed that SOCOM can be a great partner with. So we generate things like an S&T integrated priority that we have ranging all the way from an unclassified description all the way up through very highly classified capability gaps that will work with a service partner. Hey, this is important to us because here is intelligence that's telling us this is a threat and here is an opportunity that we see in the technology domain and we'll work with a government development partner to, to overcome this. So that's that's the service part. The part about entrepreneurs, industry, um, just the general commercial tech, if I, first of all, many of them don't want to have a classified conversation or they're not cleared to have a classified conversation. So I wouldn't approach them the same way. Um, they're also, particularly in an entrepreneur startup side, their time horizon is vastly different. You mentioned dark time horizon. If you're a startup, one of the big shifts for me was realizing that small business isn't always got the same um, um, priorities as a startup. Many of the startup communities, as I've talked to them, it's looking to do a relevant decision within about a two-year window of time. Well, the Defense Department, generally speaking, doesn't work very well in that in that time horizon, which is why I've seen some starts with some of our outreaches to venture capital and Silicon Valley. If, we, if we're disconnected on the timeline and our expectations, it can be very frustrating for both sides. So one of the things that we've done in order to overcome that, because, so why do I care, right? Well, if I ask the same people to solve the same problem but expect a different answer, that's just the very definition of, of insanity. And as we're facing different challenges today, I really need to go get different people's ideas about solving those problems. So I have to figure out how do I bring them into that? And, and so as we're facing you know, um, integrated deterrence as an overarching challenge for the department and what is Special Operations Command's role in achieving integrated deterrence, we have to think that, that the things that we'll be facing are gonna be changing based upon that entrepreneurial commercial marketplace. So what, what we ended up doing was creating, um, a, first of all, you have to find out about it, which is what they talk, but you have to turn that into an action. And one of the, the things that's a challenge with the innovation ecosystem is how do I actually go from here's something I want to do to being able to actually do that thing, to develop that technology, to get a production decision on that. And there's been a lot of, 
of congressional language. There's been a lot of lots of conferences, seminars, you know, congressional reports about the acquisition system is broken. We're giving you middle tier acquisition authority. But a lot of it is really breaking down the barriers to entry and breaking down the administrative burden. So one of the tools that we've done that we're super excited about in partnership with Congress is we got authority to use small business innovative research which is a subset of all federally funded R&D. Um, it's congressionally mandated. And right now, for your viewers that are interested in this, right now that authority is has to be renewed by Congress. And it has not been approved yet. So we may have a gap in SBIR authority. But one of the challenges with SBIR has been great for historic small, but a normal timeline to production decision is anywhere between five and 10 years. By the time that you announce a topic, you go through the, you get approval for a new program, you get money for a new program, and you award a production contract. SOCOM has had pretty high transition rates, but our average has been about five years, and that's one of the lower numbers in the department. That doesn't line up with an entrepreneur's two-year cycle. So we sat back and said, how can we break the paradigm to get under two? And what we've done is we use our partner intermediary, Softworks, to do a business-to-business -business contract. So we announce that topic, and then instead of having them submit through the federal action to get their paychecks, I give check to Softworks, who immediately passes it to the entrepreneurial company. And so they don't have to get, they don't have to go through, they get paid just like they get paid for any other work that they do. And we've, uh, we've run this, this pilot for three years now. We have decreased the time to production an average of two thirds. And we are well under the two year mark. The fastest one we did was from topic announcement to production award was 11 months. Mm. Um, and so that's been a tremendously successful uh, project that we've, our authority. And the only way we did that, we have congressional language in the Defense Authorization Act that allows us to do it. It actually took a law change to let us do that. So that's an example of how we do that. Um, I don't have a lot of authority to do it. I, I, I've spent on average about seven and a half million dollars of my money. We did get expansion in 2022 to use other people's money so we can spend up to $20 million under this authority, which gets us an ability to do about five projects. Um, so I'm not going to change the world with this. I'm not going to build a new aircraft carrier with this, but it is a tool that we uh, that we see value in. So that's just an example. Outstanding. Really outstanding. Um, yeah, I, I, Lisa, I'd like to touch on some of these projects now and, and some of the different science and technology themes. But before I do that, I just want to uh, read a quote. Uh, the hyper-enabled operator work that we're focusing on really is about getting that capability that you assume that you have in your personal life in a tactically relevant environment and being able to adapt as that environment changes. Lisa Sanders, head of science and technology. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about it. Just, what, what is a hyper-enabled operator? It, it, I have an idea of what it might be, but define what a hyper-enabled operator is, please. What it really does is it is focused on the person in the tactical environment. So, um, so if your tactical mission is to train somebody to be able to, to um, set up a good perimeter, a security perimeter, then the job is the special forces guy, because that's a building partner capacity kind of a mission. That is a special forces mission. It's not always you know, kicking down doors and shooting people. Right. A lot of it is about building partners. And so that 
So how do I get them to understand how to do that? Um, and, and sometimes there's a language barrier. So I may need an ability, you know, they may have some level of ability to communicate with me, but to be able to talk about technical things, I need an ability to communicate with them. Um, sometimes it's about, um, about building in muscle memory, right? Um, you do it the same way every time so that when you're under threat, you don't miss a step. For hyper enabling the operator to use all, and, and this is why the quote that I said is what I said. We don't think twice about this in our personal life. All right. If I'm going to go into a new city, I don't, I, I, I go hit an app to figure out, you know, is this road closed? How much does it cost me on the subway vice? How much is an Uber going to cost me to get to some place? How long is it going to take me? Which restaurant should I go to? If I'm training a partner force to do that, what kinds of apps and tools would I need to have to do that? And how do I ensure that they do what I want them to do? Um, and, and so the where I'm sitting right now is in New York City, and we just spent five days operator team gathering signals of interest and fusing that into information that helps us understand our environment and and and, and build to say, all right, what tools do we need to use today to be able to do that mission? So that um, it, 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 it actually, unlike many military um, capabilities, is something that should be very intuitive to a person on the street. And again, if I go back to a standard traditional defense contractor, they're going the, the tool they're going to give me is very different than if I were to ask somebody that does commercial apps that they sell on you know the Apple Marketplace or on the Google uh, the Google Web App Store. Absolutely, very cool. Um, okay, so on, on that note, then. Um, GovTech News, Lisa Sanders, USOCOMI's potential use cases for AI at the edge. Uh, and AI is a theme that, you know, we've, we touch a lot on the show. Edge computing, a little less so, but, uh, you know, in this article, you're talking about, you know, shrinking, fusing this together, obviously, you know, looking at all these different areas where AI uh, could support missions. And, and you give examples here, like uh, being able to, to tell a precise distance, uh, precise direction of, of, uh, uh, of a certain military maneuver, what, what have you. Talk a little bit about this, and then obviously, um, you know, when we talk about AI and, and and the military, obviously, this whole question always comes up about are you talking about taking someone out of the loop versus keeping someone in the loop? Uh, talk about some yeah. of these issues that you deal with uh, at SOCOM specifically as it pertains to AI. And um, I'm going to use another buzzword and define it because um, autonomy is really where this comes. The the operational capability is not AI. I don't buy AI because I want AI. I want AI to allow me to do things more effectively, more efficiently, which in many ways can is the definition of autonomy, right? But back to your point about it doesn't mean that the human is not involved in the critical points in the decision. What it does is enables the human to get the the what they need to make the right decision at the point of need because the and which is why edge computing really matters the best decision two hours after i need to make the decision is not a very good decision right 
So if I'm reliant upon, so knowing when I have enough to allow the decision maker to make the decision is a part of this kind analytics can help enable that. So it, um, autonomy has, you know, in military autonomy has often focused on platforms. It's been about how do I do swarming UAVs? It's been about how do I do an unmanned wingman that helps, you know, goes through a perimeter and clears the defenses so that my manned system can come in at a lower risk. But I think the next step is really about in a world where everything is connected and you couldn't possibly at a human scale understand what's key information, how do I use those tools to tip and cue the decision maker at the right time to make the decision? Um, and so it, it is all about the human in the loop, but it's about clearing um, clearing the noise to make the, the decision um, that you need timely. And the, the edge compute for us, and again, defining this is really important. If you're a commercial applications uh, developer, when you're saying edge, you're assuming you're pulling from the cloud as needed. Um, we would assume in that now when we can, that's great. But we believe in many of our applications, we will either because we're jammed or because we're in a remote location that doesn't have that access depend upon an ability to either get information or processing power from a reachback. So tactical edge computing to us really is how do you apply the GPU level um, uh, in an operator's hand. And so one of the explorations that we're doing with our hyper-enabled operator concept is, is it important that it fits in the phone size or do I need more processing even if I have to carry it in a backpack? Mm -hmm. You know, those, those are the kind of trades that we're having to make. And, and that technology is changing so rapidly. We, the DOD, and certainly we, little US SOCOM, could never put the investment in place that's actually going to drive that technology. The commercial marketplace is what's driving that technology. We're just trying to figure out what is relevant to our mission and how do we capture it at the point of need. Very cool. Very cool indeed. Um, Lisa, moving from artificial intelligence in the edge now to um, sort of what we call broadly human enhancement. Um, there was this uh, press release a little while ago about uh, SOCOM's work. And then it, it mentioned it's through, and if you could, you mentioned this earlier, but if you redefine this for the other transaction authority funds uh, partnering with in the biotech industry, working in this area of uh, nicotinamide and it, adenine dinucleotide, NADs, a really hot uh, molecule, mm -hmm. a hot area of biology is sort of just in general in the, in the pharma space nowadays. Um, talk a little about, and obviously there's a confidential here and partially, you know, you have to go into that, of course, but a little bit about, you know, when, when you're moving from um, silicon now to biology, and, and, and again, we spent time with folks like uh, Colonel Suarez, who walked us through a little bit about how his group at USAMR, you know, worked with the Moderna with the Operation Warp Speed. What is involved in something mm -hmm. like this? Again, I, again, I, in, in my mind, I see, you know, Navy SEAL, hey, I need, I need some more energy, Lisa, what can we do? Maybe we'll do this clinical trial, but how does it all, how does that all work? It's kind of really cool. Yeah, um, so, so, I'll, I'll take a quick left turn because I, I didn't answer that question when you asked me earlier, how do I get 
the priorities? Is it is it Sergeant Joe Bag of Donuts, which is an expression that we use, walks into my sure. office? Um, there is a connection to our operational community, okay, which is which is one of the things that's the privilege of working in this community is that it's a small enough community that I don't have to necessarily go through a tiered, structured, this is who validates a need for me and I work on that. So there is some connection, but oftentimes it is through um, much more often uh, what is the strategic imperative that we are being asked to do as Special Operations Command to achieve a strategic um, objective such as integrated deterrence and how can soft, what would soft be asked to do that special operations and where are barriers to doing that? So if we think about integrated deterrence being across a whole range of conflict, again, less about kicking down a door and shooting somebody and more about, hey, maybe I'm about understanding what an environment is so I can determine before something becomes a crisis that we need to understand that environment. What operational capability do I need to do that? So that might be a situational awareness, a sensing kind of a thing. But we do know that one of the things that is unique about Special Operations Command is that everything we do is centered around the operator. And so we the, the first talk, soft truth, Special Operations Forces truth, is that humans are more important than hardware. So it is less about the guns that they carry and the trucks that they drive and the radios that they communicate on. Back to where I said autonomy is about providing decision-making at the point of need. How do I optimize that operator to be able to make that decision? I mean, we've we've done a lot of work in the physical domain. How do I make them stronger? How do I avoid happens? Our guys, I mean, think if you talk about SEALs, the SEALs live in a really rugged environment. The boats that they go out and ride around in, they're not on a nice flat sea taking a pleasure cruise where it's comfortable. They're out in very high sea states, going really fast. They have a lot of lower back injuries because of that. So we've done some physical work on that. But in the cognitive domain, how do I enable them in probably under lack of sleep, under poor nutrition conditions, in very high consequence situations. You know, when we're tired and we make a bad decision, it may be, hey, look, you know, maybe I got in a little fender bender here and that's bad. But if they're in an operational scenario, also tired, how do I make them more able to be prepared? So that's why this emphasis on the human performance. I'm not out there trying to create a super soldier. I'm trying to keep them at their peak performance so that they can do their, lower their risk. So back in this concept of the work that we're doing um, with this particular mod molecule, it is really about how do we, we don't understand our human body very well. And we certainly don't understand how the brain works. Um, so how do we optimize our ability to work at peak performance? And this, you mentioned it's, we don't create this research. This research is out there and there's a lot of commercial applications. Everybody would like to be smarter all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, everybody would like to live longer. Everybody would like to not be tired. To when you sleep, sleep well, right? So we, um, so what, again, as a part of not asking the same people the same questions, who else is interested in that? And are they interested in working with our community to see how this could apply? So we do have a contract, an, an other transaction agreement with a vendor. And one of the unique things about other transaction agreements, I mentioned that there's some areas that we, the government, can't spend all the money that would be needed for this. 
One of the values of another transaction agreement is it allows to have collaborative funding, joint funding, where people cost share. And so this particular effort that we have with this vendor is in a cost sharing arrangement and allows us to bring our warfighters into the conversation to say what would matter to us. And it's an extreme use case. You know, for them, that's a very extreme use case. Our operators work in environments that are very different. If you jump quickly back to the human uh, physical performance side of the house, a lot of people refer to special operations uh, uh, personnel. We're elite athletes. And we are, we, it's not me, okay? You look like one. It's, they are elite athletes. <laughs> yeah, it's not me, trust me. If you saw me, I, I, you know, I don't bench press, I don't run, I don't do any of that stuff, right? But if you're an Olympic class athlete, that is your job. You do everything to maintain your nutrition optimally. You maintain your sleep cycles. You know, you see the Olympic athletes and they go into the location far enough in advance that their bodies are on that time clock, right? Our guys may not have the luxury to be able to do that, right? They can't choose to, I'm going to sleep 14 hours before I go on a mission. And it's going to, they're, they're in the field and it's dirty and it's, you know, either hot or cold and they're eating out of what's ever in their backpack. They don't have you know, a four-star with them. So that's a real extreme mission. And so when we work with these biotechnology companies for things like this, it's a hard challenge for them. And that's why they're drawn to us. Very, very cool. Yeah, I uh, yeah I had the the opportunity to to meet the, this the Dr. Tom Boothby at the University of Wyoming, and he was working with the through DARPA. They were working on this sort of this golden hour biology of you know how we can mm -hmm. put potentially someone into suspended animation, and you know once again it uh, gets me thinking of all the potential out there, and and, and then coming back on that note, the sort of edge we're thinking about the bleeding edge now. Um, one of the great things about doing this show, aside from getting to talk to really cool people like you, is I get to, to hear about sort of these bleeding edge tools. And, you know, we've done shows on quantum computing that I don't understand it very well. I did a couple episodes on, on dir directed energy. Why? Because laser beams are cool. <laughs> it's like, um, looking out, though, I mean, uh, you know, because you're at this amazing intersection of science, of translation, of operationalizing stuff. What else gets you excited? What are the, what, looking at the five, 10 years, what are you interested in? What do you think the, uh, the next cool stuff coming along that you'd like to see in the hyper-enabled operator's hands or in anyone's hands <laughs> for that matter uh, in the Department of Defense are? What, what gets you excited? Yeah, and, and great question. And, and so for me, I think the big leaps now are gonna come at the intersections of all of these things. It is going to, you know, we, we have thought of things in stovepipes for years. You use this section of the electromagnetic spectrum for communication, you use this section for jamming. Uh, you know, when you when you have an effect, it's a different thing. And, and, and it's everything from the way on it, you know, antennas work really well in this range, so we only do these things with them, for instance. Um, and a lot of it for us in the Department of Defense has been in this question of policy and authorities. Okay, well, if you're using band to do this, then it falls into the intelligence side of the community. So you have to have this authority. Whereas if you're doing it to do that, it's jamming and jamming has these rules of engagement. This is defined as cyber. I think the actual jumps are going to be when we, when we, when we remove those mental barriers and um, start thinking about, well, what can I do technically 
and what effect does it have? How can it give me an opportunity to achieve something in a different way? And then we back ourselves into the, and who needs to approve this? How do we authorize the use for that? And it's, um, it's, I'm actually, and maybe it's because I don't consider myself a scientist, well, I'm not a scientist and I don't approach things from a science perspective. I think it's less about the discovery of the next, you know, quantum device and more about how do I take discoveries and actually deliver them into capability quickly. So it's the ability to turn quickly with a, how could I use this? What does it mean? And in order to do that, you do have to have that connection to the warfighters because again, scientists in labs are very excited about the technology, but they don't necessarily see all the ways that it can be employed. And, and so bringing together the, how can we use this? And then what does it take to make that happen? Whether it's money, whether it's a contract, whether it's an authority to use something is I think where the biggest game changes are gonna be over the next few years. Outstanding. Lisa, what, uh... Coming back to the uh, our intro uh, and, and, and your, your your intro, um, you mentioned that um, you know if you weren't doing all of this, uh, you'd be teaching music. Um, what, what 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 type of music are you into? Um, what do you, what do you turn on when you're working? What do you listen to at home? Uh, what, what's your passion about? Tell, tell yeah. us a little about the music passion, if you would. Sure. Well, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not like the kind of musician that, that, you know, uh, that, that is like an instrument or anything like that. I actually, all of my life is grounded in my faith. So I listen to contemporary Christian music. So for me, it is about what motivates me mm -hmm. and what motivates me is to do everything I can do to the glory and honor of God. And I do that through supporting my, my war fighters. Right. So that does motivate me. And there are times where I turn on the radio and it is just the right song to motivate me, whether it's a, you know, you can do all things or, you know, somebody cares about you. I want to, I want our operators to know that there are people that are doing everything we can today to give them an unfair fight against the future adversary. And in a perfect world to make it in such a way that there's not a fight, that we are able to understand things in such a way that, 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 we're able to maintain our defense and, and achieve the objectives with our partners. Partners and allies, a big part of that, right? Um, it's we're, we're not Pax Americana, where it's just the United States. Uh, so that that's what motivates me. Awesome, awesome. One one last thing, Lisa. While we have you, um, anything upcoming for 2022? Entry as we enter 2023, uh, conferences, open houses of types uh, for softworks, anything that we should know about, please mm -hmm. uh, take the floor if I missed anything. Sure. Um, a couple of things that might be of interest to your, to your listeners. Um, we do quarter, well, not a little less than quarterly, three times a year, we do what we call technical experimentation, where we put out a topic and we're looking for things that you can touch and feel. So it's technology readiness level six, seven ish. Um, that there's a theme against it, say, uh, you know, an ability to communicate in tunnel environments or, you know, an ability to sense through walls, things like that. So uh, we post that on LinkedIn. We officially post that through federal channels that goes out on our beta.san.gov, which is the government's official announcement of opportunities. People paid to come, but what they get is their tech in the hands of operators who tell them, hey, here's what I think about it. 
uh, here's here's feedback on how I think it could be used. So you, we joke that we don't pay you to come, but you can't buy the kind of feedback that you get. Okay. Uh, so if people are interested in that, we do have an event coming up in December. Uh, and then we have an event, I think it's in March and then one in uh, uh, late spring, early summer. So those are important things to be aware of. So that's the, you can touch and feel it. It's it's a piece of tech. It's not something you can go buy off the shelf yet though. It's, it's, it's not fully mm -hmm. mature, but it's in that range of development. The other extreme of that is, is in the interest of exploring what might we be doing, what things should we be investing in that we don't know about, we do what we call innovation foundry activities which are about developing concepts. So the one I'm gonna say right now is actually our, the, the announcement's already closed, but just to give you an example, uh, we do again, three of these a year. So as an example, we've got a, we put out a data call through again, LinkedIn, beta.sam.gov softworks ecosystem that says, if you think you've got ideas for how SOCOM can do their missions in a world where everything is connected, please come in and have a conversation with us. And, and that's a very open-ended uh, topic intentionally. You can look at this from the, okay, how do I hide in a world where there's cancer? Okay, that's one side of it. Or there, you could look at this as, how do I use all of those sensors that are out there, including your digital virtual fingerprint of pattern of life to be able to positively identify somebody? So so the, those foundry activities are tabletop type, type table top exercise activities where you, and again, operators are at the center of all these. They're in the room with crazy mad scientists, you know, 12 year old artificial intelligence experts. <laughs> uh, we've in the past, we've had uh, people whose names you would recognize from Hollywood that have been part of these conversations um, that come in and talk about, Hey, what if I could stick a laser on a shark? What would that do for you? <laughs> you know, and, and we develop concepts that then we can say, well, if this idea is a good idea, well, what's the state of technology? If it's the laser on a shark, where's my actual barrier to making that happen? Is it the power system for it? Is it controlling the shark? Is it making it waterproof? You know, and so we deconstruct that. So those processes and activities are places and, and, and really low barrier to entry. We do some of these virtually. You can plug into a Zoom call for three days and be a part of this conversation that gets you thinking about really cool different ways to use your ideas. So those would be two different things uh, that we do that are upcoming and we continue to evolve that. And they're all connected to what the vision and mission of special operations in the future will be. Very cool. Very cool. Though you got me thinking of laser beam sharks now. I was <laughs> I have a slight fear of sharks. Now, that hates that example. But no, it's uh, it, it makes me wonder. And <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> real really cool stuff, Lisa. I, I, I mean, I'm just I, I'm in awe listening to sort of uh, the scope of your uh, your portfolio here, and just really wishing you all the success in the world as, as you continue to to serve at this important intersection between uh, science and translation and it, it's just really amazing stuff so i just really appreciate you walking through all of this um 
for everybody uh, out there that's going to be uh, listening to this particular episode of our show uh, across the various podcast networks or watching on our YouTube channel. Again, you've been listening to Lisa Sanders, Director of Science and Technology for Special Operation Forces, Acquisition Tech and Logistics, USOCOM, uh, located at MacDill Air Force Base. Um, Lisa, again, I want to thank you for taking the, the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while. Obviously, thank you for everything you're doing, your long service to the country, and for keeping us safe. And as we like to say on our show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through everything you're involved in. Uh, it's a really very fascinating story. And again, wishing you the best with all of it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It was great seeing you.